Welcome to the Facts or What Matter podcast, where we discuss the lies, the myths, and the propaganda being promoted by the media and society. Let's all be informed, not uninformed, or even worse, misinformed. Here we go. Hello, I'm your host, Dave Swinford, and in this episode of the Facts or What Matter, we're going to analyze and discuss the practicality as far as energy of moving from gasoline-powered automobiles to all-electric passenger cars and light trucks. I'd like to remind you to subscribe to my Substack at Dave Swinford, that's S-W-I-N-F-O-R-D, dot substack.com, where you can see the details of the website, see the sources, the graphics, and uh, you can make comments, etc. So to give you a little background on this topic, I've read several articles that discuss the concept of going to an all-electric economy, which would require converting all the coal and natural gas electrical generation facilities to wind, solar, and or nuclear. And there's a guy I follow online named Willis Eschenbach, and uh, he writes analyses he's done on whatsupwiththat.com in a couple of the places. And he's written a couple of articles that address this, one titled Bright Green Impossibilities, and another titled Bright Green California Dreaming. And there's a link to that in the substack. In these articles, these two articles and some others, he computes the number of new nuclear reactors, windmills, solar panels, etc. that are required in the next few years to replace all those fossil fuels we use. In one case, across the country, and in the other case, just in California. And in these articles, he determines that we can't build the generating capacity fast enough. In other words, they're dreaming, right? Impossibilities, bright dreaming impossibilities. Also of note is Francis Minton, and he writes at ManhattanContrarian.com, and he has several articles where he points out where this carbon-free electricity argument kind of falls short, particularly in relation to energy storage. Where and how do we store all the energy made by these solar panels and wind turbines? Now, I think he's a retired lawyer and not an engineer, but but he gets it, and a link to that is also in the Substack. Now, I started out approaching this as a friendly fact check on those articles just to see if their math was right and, you know, if it made sense. But I decided to start with a smaller analysis. I decided to see how much new electricity we would need if we were just replaced all the gasoline-powered cars and trucks. No large diesel trucks, trains, ships, or heavy equipment. I'm only going to look at the energy requirements for gasoline-powered cars and light trucks. And we'll just assume that all the logistical issues with electrical vehicles, such as adding charging locations, wiring out homes, shopping centers, offices, all those have been solved. We'll assume that batteries are unlimited, they last forever, and they're cheap. All we're going to focus in is how much energy we will need to replace from what we are now getting from gasoline. Not even diesel, just gasoline. So how much new electrical generating capacity will we need to add to the electrical grid? The first question to answer is, well, how much energy is used for transportation, and specifically gasoline used in traditional cars and light trucks? And so for our calculations, we will use the 2019 numbers from the Energy Information Administration, an agency of the U.S. government, which show approximately 26,000 trillion BTU of energy per year is used in the transportation sector, and 59% of that is for gasoline for passenger vehicles. So after doing some conversions from BTUs to kilowatt hours, which is how we think of electricity, 
we end up with roughly 4.5 trillion kilowatt hours of energy per year that is currently used to propel cars, light trucks, and small boats. Those are normally powered with fossil fuel, which would then need to be powered by electricity. So per the EIA, basically the U.S. electrical energy generation capacity is only 4.01 trillion kilowatt hours. Now, we would need to more than double our current electrical generation capacity to meet the additional demand for electric cars and light trucks, garden tools, small boats, those things. Now, that $4.5 trillion is in addition to our current $4.01 trillion, so we would need a total of $8.5 trillion kilowatt hours of electricity for what we are already consuming plus what we need for these electric cars. But here's a bit of good news for the electric car evangelical society. We lose a lot of energy in an internal combustion engine that gets dissipated as heat. It turns out that electrical vehicles are more energy efficient than conventional cars. So maybe, maybe we can lower that energy requirement a bunch. Now we know that not all the energy gets to the wheels of an automobile. So now we have to ask how energy efficient is an internal combustion engine versus an electric vehicle. Once again, the government tells us this at the fueleconomy.gov, and there's a link to that in the substack, where they have some pretty good infographics. Now, according to these infographics, they show that only about 25% of the energy we put in our gas tank results in movement down the road using an internal combustion engine. And we can compare that with an electric vehicle which is quite a bit more energy efficient since they aren't wasting energy in the form of heat from the combustion process. Now, about 78% of the energy that we put into the battery results in movement down the road. Now, what's also not in this infographic is they did not account for air conditioning or heating or playing the radio or running the windshield wipers, those kinds of things. You get those basically for free in a gasoline engine, at least energy-wise, but we're not going to try to factor that into this analysis right now. And there's also some energy lost in charging of the battery of about 10%, which they show in their graphic. Now, if we factor in the efficiency of the electric vehicles in our energy calculations, now we only need 4.5 trillion times 25 over 78, which is basically the ratio of internal combustion to electric vehicles. So that results in 1.44 trillion kilowatt hours. Plus, of course, the 10% charging efficiency that we have to make up for. And that ends up being 1.59 trillion kilowatt hours of energy. Now, there are going to be more losses to factor in with the generation and distribution of all this electricity, right? So I'm not, I don't know what those are. I'm not counting those. In other words, the 1.59 trillion isn't all the power that's required to be generated. But for now, we're going to assume that those losses are zero, which certainly is not the case. So we would need to add on at least another 1.59 trillion kilowatt hours of electricity generation to accommodate the electric cars replacing our gasoline power cars. All this electricity is new demand, meaning it will be have to be added to the current generating capacity. Now, current nuclear generation capacity is around 0.8 trillion kilowatt hours, which comes from 96 nuclear reactors or plants, which makes the math really convenient. If we double that 0.8 trillion produced by nuclear plants, that would give us 1.6 trillion kilowatt hours, which is 
pretty much exactly what we need. That means we will need to build at least 192 new nuclear reactors over the next 28 years to meet the goal of 2050 of getting traditional cars off the road. And I'm sure the demand for electricity will continue to grow over the next 28 years. So let's just let's just round that 192 up to 200. That means we have to build more than seven new nuclear reactors per year, every year, for the next 28 years. Since it takes about 10 years to acquire the site property, design, fund, build, and permit a nuclear reactor, we're so far behind we can never catch up. Now, really good news is we can we can put these theoretically put these reactors where the demand for electricity is high and they'll generate power whether the sun shines, whether the wind blows, whether it's snowing or raining. And we also won't have to string out electrical lines from the desert southwest all the way to the coast of Maine. As an alternative to nuclear, maybe we can install photovoltaic solar arrays to generate all the electricity. It might. Be, might be easier to find sites and get approval for those. Maybe we could build those out quicker. While you can technically install these solar arrays pretty much anywhere, they're much more efficient at southern latitudes since during the course of, of a year, there are more hours of sunlight there. For example, at the extreme of the Arctic Circle, there wouldn't be any sunlight at all for several months of the year, which would require huge batteries. And at southern latitudes, you always have some sunshine in the winter, even if the days are shorter. The best place, of course, in the U.S. would be the desert southwest, where there is plentiful sunshine year-round and large expanses of empty land. Now, assuming we could install enough substations and transmission wires to get all the electricity distributed across the U.S., how much land area will that take? Well, according to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in their report, land use requirements for solar power plants in the United States, you need about eight acres of total area per megawatt of power generation from photovoltaic solar. And I have a link to that uh, in, in my substack with a graphic also. So to equal a small 1,000 megawatt, that's a gigawatt by the way, 1,000 megawatt nuclear power plant, you would need eight acres times a 1,000 or 8,000 acres of solar arrays. But the really bad news is you really need more than that. While nuclear power plants generate 90 power 90 plus percent of the time, solar arrays during the course of a year only generate power about 25 to 30 percent of the time because they don't generate power at night and they have reduced output during cloudy days, dark winter days, rainy weather, etc. So now let's multiply that 8,000 acres times 4, which turns into 32,000 acres, and at 640 acres per square mile, those 32,000 acres are equivalent to 50 square miles. So for comparison, the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., is about 60 square miles. So let's compare that to nuclear. According to the Nuclear Energy Institute, a nuclear energy facility has a small area footprint, this is a quote, Quote from them, a nuclear energy facility has a small area footprint requiring about 1.3 square miles per 1,000 megawatts of installed capacity. Now, this figure is based on the median land area of the 59 nuclear plant sites in the United States. In addition, 
nuclear energy facilities have an average capacity factor of 90, much higher than intermittent sources like wind and solar. To go back to the original question of how are we going to power all these electric cars without gasoline, we can build 200 nuclear power plants at 260 square miles, or we can build 10,000 square miles of photovoltaic solar panels. That's 200 times 50. And these numbers are crazy for either technology. Just for comparison, the entire state of Maryland has 9,700 square miles. The area required for wind is even larger than either of these, and there are even fewer good places to install those huge wind turbines. Now, the dirty little secret about solar is that there's no cheap and reliable way to store all that energy generated during the day when you don't need it for use in charging your car at night when you do need it. I guess we could cheat that a little bit by having solar farms from Georgia all the way to California across the U.S., and that might add some extra hours to the energy timeline for those on the East Coast since California time zones is is three three time zones away, but it certainly doesn't help anyone in, in California. Is it possible to add 40% to our electricity production over the next 30 years? Well, I'm sure that it is, but the bottom line is that 40% needed for electric vehicles will be on top of the normal growth. And while it might be possible to be creative and schedule the charging of electric vehicles during low usage times like in the middle of the night or when demand on the grid is lagging, it's doubtful we're going to be able to cover the 40% we would need. And let's be honest about where we are today. There are brownouts in California during the heat of the summer. Texas had a freeze-out, for lack of a better term, in February of 2021 when their wind turbines froze up and stopped generating electricity, and then they couldn't get the backup natural gas production facilities online fast enough. And I personally know people from the Dallas area that didn't have power for almost a week. High population areas like New York City routinely have brownouts in the heat of the summer when the electrical generation can't keep up with the added demands of air conditioning. Is there an extra 40% of electricity available out there not being used? I don't think so. If we can find enough lithium for all the batteries, if we build charging stations everywhere, if we rewire our homes and offices and shopping centers to accommodate these chargers, if we accept the travel delay due to slow charging times, then we will still not have enough electricity to charge and operate all of our electric cars. We could have enough electricity if we start building those 200 nuclear reactors across the country, but since those take 10 years from concept to completion, we aren't even close to being ready, and no one seems to want to build new, new nuclear capacity these days. What's the current state of our electricity generation capacity? The Wall Street Journal has already given us some warnings of limited electricity for the summer. In a May 8th article, it's the title of, of which is, Electricity Shortage Warnings Grow Across the U.S. And this is by um, Catherine, Catherine Blunt. It says, From California to Texas to Indiana, electric grid operators are warning that Power generating capacity is struggling to keep up with demand, a gap that could lead to rolling blackouts during heat waves or other peak periods as soon as this year. California grid operator said Friday it anticipates a shortfall in supplies this summer, especially if extreme heat, wildfires, or delays in bringing new power sources online exacerbate the constraints. Uh, 
and it goes on to say uh, later on it says the challenge is that wind and solar farms which are among the cheapest forms of power generation don't produce electricity at all times and need large batteries to store their output for later use while a large amount of battery storage is under development regional grid operators have lately warned that the pace may not be fast enough to offset the closures of traditional power plants that can work around the clock. Now, without a little more thought, that last paragraph sounds good, but it was slightly deceptive. Wind and solar without some way to store the energy are many times cost burdens to the power grid. In California, they've been building solar farms at a rapid pace for the last 10 years. And on paper, they have added a bunch of megawatts in generation capacity to the grid. But when it gets evaluated by how many gigawatt hours they're provided by those technologies, you'll quickly find out that while photovoltaic capacity in the state is 5.7 times that of nuclear in megawatts, it only supplies 1.9 times the power in gigawatts. And, and it's confusing with all the power conversions there, but but basically they've added capacity by the nameplate on the side of the on side of the of the power plant, but they're not getting it right because it doesn't work all the time. Now, even California has realized that they may need to keep the one remaining nuclear plant that they have online and keep it generating for several more years. As reported by the daily wire, California's last remaining nuclear power plant was set to close by 2025, but now governor Newsom seems to be getting cold feet. He told a local TV station that he's in support of keeping all options on the table to ensure that the state has a reliable grid heading into the summer. The plant in question is Diablo Canyon Nuclear Power Plant, owned by Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E, which was planning to shut down the plant by 2025. The plant created about 6% of California's power last year. In 2016, PG&E reached an agreement with environmental organizations and their union workers to stop its nuclear work after its licenses for nuclear reactors end in 2024 and 2025. However, Newsom is shifting the goalposts a bit. He said he's looking into trying to get federal funds up to $6 billion that are directed at helping save nuclear reactors that are facing shutdowns. Spokesperson for PG&E, Susan Hosen, told Daily Wire in an email, PG&E is committed to California's clean energy future. The people of PG&E are proud of the role that Diablo Canyon Power Plant plays in our state. We are always open to considering all options to ensure continued, safe, reliable, and clean energy delivery to our customers. So if, the great, if the great state of California, with its vast natural resources, large, sunny, and expensive deserts, and the huge push they get from their climate and environmental lobby, can't figure out how to reliably supply electricity to support its population now, without the additional burden of every car being electric, how in the world can states such as West Virginia or Vermont or Maine do it without those resources? And in late breaking news, we now have the great state of Texas asking people to conserve electricity in May. They're claiming that unseasonably warm weather could cause the grid to fail. Wait, it's May. It's not July or August when it gets really hot. In an article from utilitydive.com, the title says, After calls for conservation and generator fails, Failures, Texas's grid survived the weekend. It's still May. This was published in May 16th. 
It's a sixth Texas generation facility supplying 2.9 gigawatts of power tripped offline, leading the state's grid operator on Friday to call for conservation over the weekend amid unseasonably warm and seasonably hot weather, driving record demand for electricity. Ultimately, the light stayed on, and the Electric Reliability Council of Texas expects more resources available Monday to meet an expected peak demand of almost 72 gigawatts. However, the grid operator's seasonal assessment of resource adequacy for the spring had anticipated a peak demand of only 64 gigawatts. More renewables, efficiency, demand response, and storage resources could help meet growing power demand, say experts, and the Public Utilities Commission of Texas continues to work on overhauling market rules to ensure reliability. The article goes on to say ERCOT, that was the agency, asked Texas residents to conserve power when they can by setting their thermostats to 78 degrees or above and avoiding the use of large appliances from 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. during the weekend. Now notice what they didn't say. Just sit around your house and sweat. And those large appliances, that they really, what they really mean is don't use your electric stove, your electric oven, or your electric clothes dryer, or take a shower with hot water from your electric water heater between 3 p.m. and 8 p.m. this weekend. They want the Texas residents, the consumers, to make accommodations for their improper management of the power grid. How can this be fixed? Well, stand by for some great disinformation. The article quotes Michael Lee, the CEO of Octopus Energy, a retail supplier of renewable power in Texas, is saying, The failure of the grid and skyrocketing energy bills well before peak summertime demand is a preview of what's to come if Texas continues to invest in more unreliable fossil fuel assets. Unreliable fossil fuel assets, says the guy selling green energy? To put this in proper perspective, they took some fossil fuel generating plants off of the grid for maintenance, like they do every spring before the heat of the summer, and it wasn't even that much overall. It was 2.9 gigawatts out of the 72 gigawatts they needed, so about 4%. Now, the green energy solar and wind system that they've been installing for the last few years, instead of the reliable fossil fuel systems or nuclear systems, now those green systems can't keep up with the demand. When? Surprise! It's in the early evening when it's still hot, and air conditioners are running, and people are cooking, and people are washing clothes, and people are taking showers, and the sun's going down. I'm shocked. Not really. So let's go back to our original question when we started this episode with. Do we have enough electricity to power the entire fleet of U.S. cars and light trucks as electric vehicles? And the answer is a resounding, hell no. We barely have enough electricity to power our current needs, especially if we want to run the air conditioner this summer. Now, Mr. Eschenbach was right. We're being sold bright green impossibilities. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope I didn't lose you in all the numbers, which can be daunting at times. So if you like this episode or any of our episodes, please pass them along to others. The whole point is to educate each other of the facts. And remember to go to my substack at daveswinford.substack.com and subscribe to that. And you can find this episode and others with text and graphics and links. And you can also provide feedback and comments that I will try to answer. So hope you have a great day and uh, enjoyed this episode. 
Thanks for listening to the Facts Are What Matter podcast. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to catch our future episodes.